0: Your bulletin says that Pastor Tim is speaking to you, but he's a bit under the weather, but hopefully it won't be a, a long illness. I'd like to recognize two people in our congregation that are strangers to most of you, or many of you, but I've known them for a good long time. Ron and Doris, would you please stand up? Um, Ron and Doris are long-time missionaries to Africa and uh used to serve in what used to be called Zaire, the country in which Ron grew up and more recently now serving in West Africa. So thanks. I have to tell a few stories about them. Uh, I was having lunch this week with Dave and Nancy Byrne and I was telling them about how Lucas was now one of the young leaders in our church and uh, Nancy just, just uh, I, I said, do you remember how how Lucas, after he was born, how he almost died, and how we were praying for him. And, and Nancy said, I was taking care of him in the hospital. So uh, they were saying that. The, the, the funnier story for me is um, one with Ron. Uh, Ron had a long time involvement with the Navigators, and I was helped by many of the Navigator materials that they had when I was in college and even beyond that, and was leading. I don't know if you remember this, Ron. I I bet you do, but you've suppressed it. Um, uh, um, I was leading a 2-7 Bible study, which is a a Bible study series that the Navigators had developed. And um, the group that they gave me was, I think it was one guy and seven women. And I led that through 12 weeks, and then we went on to the second step. But the guy graduated, and he went uh, to Wheaton. And so I was explaining this one time to Ron, and I think we were sitting with our backs against the wall, and I was explaining to him how the group now had seven women in it. And I said, Ron, I just feel like the Lord has called me to disciple women. And Ron had his head kind of down, and that got it up. And he said, uh, you're kidding, aren't you? (laughs) Do you remember that? You don't remember that. I remember that. It's true. It's true. And of course, I was pulling his leg. Um, But I have known and appreciated Ron and Doris for many years. Um, I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. And I'm going to be speaking this morning about missionary work. My sermon will focus on verses 5 through 11, but I'm going to read Acts 18, verses 1 to 11. This is God's word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently home from Italy with his wife Priscilla And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this portion of your word and what an encouragement it is to me and to indeed each one of us. I pray that you will help us as we consider it now to see how it should impact our lives and our work for you in your kingdom and your church. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Unless convinced by Scripture or plain reason, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, God help me. Now some of you will recognize those words as the words of Martin Luther spoken about 500 years ago when he was put on trial for heresy because he was teaching exactly what our church believes. And that is that a man or a woman or a child can only be set right before God because of the work of Jesus Christ alone. And Martin Luther, in saying that, was stating that he was going to be governed in his work in the church by the Word of God and by the Word of God alone. And I want that idea to frame everything that I say. Because there are temptations for missionaries There are temptations for your pastors. There are temptations for your elders. For indeed every leader in this church to be governed, to be led, to be directed, to be ruled by something other than the word of Jesus Christ. And that's a temptation we face. And I think that this passage speaks fairly directly to that. As I've been going around speaking to churches, this is... the the message I've been giving to churches and it tells me what a missionary is supposed to do. But don't just limit it to missionaries. It's what every worker in the church is supposed to do. And I find at least five things that I'm supposed to do as a missionary. And the first is given in verse 5 and also in verse 11 and that being a missionary means teaching the Word of God. When Silas and Timothy came to Corinth, Paul had already been there. We don't know exactly how long, but up until their arrival, he had been working, making tents to support himself. But when Silas and Timothy came, they not only brought encouraging news from the churches in Greece, they also brought a gift from the church in Philippi. And that gift gave Paul the freedom to declare the word of God full time. Now, verse 5 says that Paul was occupied with the Word. Other translations say something like he gave himself completely to the Word. That tells me that he was focused upon it. To explain it, to communicate it, to exposit it, to exegete it, whatever word you want to use. That's what Paul was doing. And I can imagine what he was doing is going through the Old Testament. And pointing out verse after verse after verse after verse after verse, after verse to, the, to the Jews in Corinth about how their long-awaited Messiah had already come, and indeed he was Jesus of Nazareth. A few months ago, I sat down, and I started to write a list of all the tasks that missionaries in the city where I work in Indola, Zambia, what they were doing. Here's what I came up with. Some of the missionaries teach English. Some of them care for the sick. Some of them run orphanages, build homes, train young men in auto mechanics, serve as a conduit for Western donors, help the poor start and run small businesses, teach about HIV and AIDS, serve as advocates for the oppressed. I'm not going to speak against any one of those activities. What I am going to say is that if you're engaged in them, teaching the Word of God has to be central to what you do. So that if you run an orphanage, teaching the Word of God has to be central to the running of that orphanage. If you run a college training young men to be auto mechanics, then I take it that the Word of God has to be central. Teaching the Word of God has to be central to how you conduct the running of that orphanage. When we went to Zambia from this church five years ago, I went out there zealous and all fired up. And one of the things that missionaries are always fired up about is we read the biographies of missionaries who've gone before us. I'm sure Ron and Doris have done that. And I can well remember how I was challenged, as, as every missionary is challenged, by the, by the life and work of William Carey, one of the first missionaries of the modern missionary movement to India. And one of the things that Carey wrote was he encouraged people to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. So I went out there and that was what I was going to do. Expect great things for God and attempt great things for him. But very quickly soon after we reached there I started to become intimidated and fearful so many people and I started seeing myself, seeing my own weaknesses, limitations, my own character deficiencies, my own sins and I started to give in to fear. That's why this passage speaks to me. I'd like to sit here and say, you know, I thought all of those things were true about myself but I found out they really weren't. I'd like to say that to you but I found out that they were more true than I even knew. But you know what? The word of God is not bound. I have all kinds of limitations, but God's word has none of them. And so that if we make the proclamation of the word of Jesus Christ central to what we do as missionaries, as pastors, as elders, then men and women, it has real power. I found a second thing as well in this passage. Not only are missionaries supposed to give themselves to the teaching of the Word of God, but they're also to warn those who are opposed to the gospel. In verse six, it says that when Paul preached to the Jews, they opposed him and slandered him, and not only him but the Messiah he proclaimed. What does it say in verse six of how he responded to that opposition? It says he shook the dust off his garments. And every person in front of whom he did that knew exactly what he was doing by that symbolic gesture. It was a gesture indicating Paul's unwillingness to have anything to do with the Jews or with their synagogue. Men and women, that was culturally insensitive, and you'll not find it in any missionary manual. Mission of the World doesn't recommend that I do that. Why would Paul do that? I don't know exactly why, but my best guess is he was saying that he was going to be ruled by the word of his master and savior, Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 10, his master and ours said, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So what Paul did is he warned the Jews of the consequences of their opposition. In my mind, as far as I can tell, the background for what he was doing is found in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, where it talks about a watchman. Now, where I live in Africa, we have a watchman who stays up all night and watches our house inside the walls in which we live. And I'm sure that Ron and Doris have good experience with 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 watchmen. But in the Old Testament, cities oftentimes were walled. And the job of a watchman was to walk around that wall during the hours of the night. And if he saw any trouble coming, any attack that was coming to a city, his job was to sound the alarm. If an attack came and he sounded the alarm and someone was killed in the attack, blood would not be required from him. But if an attack came and he did not sound the alarm, if he was unfaithful, if he was asleep, then blood was to be required at his hand for those who were hurt or killed in the attack. And that's exactly what a faithful missionary, a faithful pastor, a faithful elder, a faithful Sunday school teacher is to do. We're to warn those who are opposed to the gospel. We have the privilege of talking about the grace and mercy and compassion of our God and how He is able and willing to save to the uttermost everyone and anyone who will come to Him through Christ and through Him alone. But when we have proclaimed that, we have not yet done our job. We have to also say, but if you do not, If you refuse him who calls to you from heaven. If you use Jesus Christ and manipulate him for your own ends. And Ron and Doris could tell you many stories about that because that's what's happening in Africa every hour of every day. A poisonous teaching has gone out from America that proclaims Jesus Christ as a means to an end. And so Jesus Christ is manipulated much in the same way that ancient paganism and the paganism we still find in Africa today manipulates the spirit world to get what we want, to gain control over our life. Jesus Christ every day is manipulated to grant people wealth and health and all kinds of things so that they can spend it on their own desires. In men and women, Jesus Christ does not like to be manipulated. And so the faithful missionary has to proclaim, and I I think you can imagine how obnoxious that is for me to do, as a white man who in that society is wealthy, to tell men and women who are poor and black that if they play games with Jesus Christ, if they manipulate him for their own ends, and nothing waits them but the wrath of God and certain judgment. Our God is not simply a God of grace, but He is also a consuming fire to those who resist Him. And a watchman is not faithful unless He proclaims that message. A missionary is not faithful unless He proclaims that. That's not all I find in this passage. In verses 6 to 8, I find that being a missionary means experiencing sufferings and surprises. It's clear that Paul suffered as a result of his proclamation. We don't know the details, but from verses 9 and 10, it seems clear that there was the threat of physical harm. And Jeff just read just a little while ago that that was not an idle threat. Paul spent a huge amount of his time getting beat up, stoned, left for dead, all those kind of things. Sufferings are a normal part of missionary work, in part because we live in a fallen world, in part because we have an enemy like Satan. Some of the sufferings are the result of our own sin and stupidity and bad choices we make. In the African context, sufferings are normal because most of the African countries are some of the poorest nations in the world. We have to deal with worldview collision and other things. And some of you who've read our prayer letters know exactly what that means in our life. I don't want to dwell on that this morning. I'd like to dwell a bit more on verses 6 to 8 where Paul also experienced surprises of God's grace. What did he do? The Jews opposed him Paul shook the dust out of his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. I'm now going to the Gentiles. So he sets up shop next door to the synagogue. And what happens? Probably the most influential Jew in that community became a Christian with his entire household. Surprise. And I as a missionary can also tell you that that's also Yes, we do face those kind of sufferings, but there are also surprises of God's grace. I could tell you some of the surprises that we experienced while we were in Andola for four years, but that take us too far afield. But that's part of what it means. Sometimes I wonder, though, if Paul's faithfulness in being a watchman and in doing those things that were not culturally acceptable, if that did not lead directly to the conversion of that leader of the synagogue. I just wonder about that. Obviously, God is sovereign, and I'll speak about that later, but I still wonder. Being a missionary means experiencing sufferings and surprises. But I find a fourth thing. You may not see it, but I find it in verse 8. Being a missionary means building the church. Paul continued preaching and many of the Corinthians believed. And it says he was there for a whole year and a half. And a church started to take shape. I can imagine that he started to train elders. During that time he was there. But what was happening was week by week, people were believing and being baptized. And that means to me that a church was taking shape. Baptisms were occurring. Note the close link between believing and being baptized. A church was started, starting to take shape. My contention is that missionary work is church work. Missionary work has to build the church of Jesus Christ. I'd go so far as to say if missionary work does not build the church of Jesus Christ then we simply have to stop doing it and start doing something that builds His church. I think about that quite a lot because I hope you love the church of Jesus Christ because your Savior does. Promises are attached to the church. I'd like to tell you that the theological college where I teach, that I have promises in the Word of God that it's going to be built but I haven't found them. I'd like to tell you that my ministry is going to be built in Zambia and that I have promises directly from the Word of God that give that promise, but I don't find them. What I do find is that Jesus Christ has promised to build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's a promise that you and I can plead in prayer. All missionary work has to build the church of Jesus Christ. One of the surprises we had was a number of people during our, uh, the last couple of years we were in Andola had been asking me to start a Bible study. Um, there were expatriates that were flooding our area because of some economic conditions in our area um, to work in the mines as executives. And they were encouraging me to start a Bible study and indeed a church And so we started one in January of 2006. And we started that Bible study going through the early chapters of the book of Revelation. And I have to tell you that those chapters captured me because of the vision of Jesus Christ that it portrays there. And in chapter 2, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, it speaks of Him walking among the churches. And as you read on, You see his intimate knowledge of the churches, his love for them, his concern for them. He knows them and knows their toil and endurance. He knows which churches are working hard but have left their first love. He knows which churches have a reputation for being alive but they are in fact dead. He knows which churches tolerate that woman Jezebel who leads those who follow her into idolatry and immorality. He knows which churches are having some in them who are about to be thrown into prison because of their faith in Christ and which ones are going to die. He knows those churches that will not tolerate false doctrine but discipline those who presume to be prophets. He knows those churches that are on the verge of ceasing to be a true church. He loves the church. And missionaries and pastors and elders and leaders have to do exactly that. Missionary work is church work. And it has to be tied in in tangible, real, visible ways where it builds the church of Jesus Christ. I find one last thing, and I can't figure out a very good way of expressing it in a sentence But being a missionary means putting your confidence in a sovereign God. Verses 9 and 10 tell us about a vision that Paul had one night where the Lord appeared to him. And the Lord told him three things. He told him, do not be afraid. He told him to keep speaking. And he told him to not be silent. Now, it may not be in line with the vision and view of, our, of the Apostle Paul that we have, but I take it from these verses that each of those three things were temptations for him. I know they're temptations for me to give in to fear, and to be quiet, to stop speaking. But the Lord commanded Paul, don't do any of those things. And then the Lord gave him three assurances. He said, I am with you. Men and women, if we have that, I don't need to go any farther. But he did. He went beyond that and said, no one will attack you to harm you. Now, we just read that Paul experienced some of those attacks. So I take it that this was an assurance that while Paul ministered in Corinth, he was not to give in to fear because no one was going to attack him to harm him. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul experienced lots of harm, but here he was given a period of respite. No one is going to attack you to harm you. And then thirdly, it says, the risen Lord said to Paul, for I have many in this city who are my people. What in the world does that mean? I can't find anything In that verse, accept the doctrine of election that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world some upon whom He is going to shed His mercy and draw to Himself through the feeble preaching and teaching of the Word of God used by the Holy Spirit. Some people will try and tell you that the doctrine of election discourages you from doing evangelism. If I read this passage correctly, the doctrine of election is my only hope that as I attempt to be faithful in proclaiming and teaching the Word of God, God will use that feeble proclamation. He will draw His people to Himself. And so I have that assurance that in the city of Indola, Zambia, there are people. And I don't know who they are, God does, whom he has chosen from before the foundation of the world that he will draw to himself. Ron and Doris can take that as an encouragement, that in every city where they work, there are people that God will draw to himself. We don't know who they are. So we proclaim Jesus Christ and offer him to every man, to every woman, to every child. And God will Be faithful and draw his people to himself. And this is not simply a sermon this morning for missionaries. This passage is an encouragement to me, and I hope to any of you who might someday go to a culture much different from your own and work as a missionary. But it's for you too. It's for Stephen, it's for David, it's for Tim. It's for each one of the elders. It's for every one of you who teaches a youth class or a Sunday school class or leads a small group. It's for you to be faithful in teaching the Word of God and to warn those who are opposed to the Gospel, who manipulate Jesus Christ, who use Him as a means for their own ends, who refuse to submit to Him as their King. You have to warn them that the wrath of God abides on them and that they are in danger of being judged eternally. And that warning goes for anyone here this morning who is still resisting, bowing the knee to Jesus Christ as their prophet, as their priest, and as their king. As you do that faithfully, you will experience sufferings, yes, but you will also experience Surprises of God's grace. And as we do that together, we will build His church because He has promised that He will build it through our feeble efforts. So I hope that you go out of here encouraged to build the church of Jesus Christ wherever you're at. Let's pray.